the Royal Australian Air Force in person, 1921 to 2021. Ad Astra Aviator. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. The narrator is Gareth McRae, OAM. Captain the Honourable Peter Collins, AM, RFD, QC, joined the Australian Army Reservist, then CMF, at the age of 17, serving five years, ending as a commando officer. In fact, his then commanding officer was the legendary Harry Smith, SGMC, the Delta Company commander at Long Tan. Peter earned his parachute wings in 1969. He joined the Naval Reserve in 1975, where he would serve 37 years, mostly in intelligence and legal. After leaving the New South Wales Parliament in 2003, he became the first reservist to act as fleet legal officer for five months in 2003 and 2004. In 2007, he became the first former minister, state or federal, to see active service in Iraq, where he led an ADF legal team in Baghdad. He also served as honorary colonel of the 1st Commando Regiment, the first post-war Special Forces unit in the Australian Army from 1995 to 2000. In fact, he's the only serving naval officer, permanent or reserve, to have had this honour accorded by the Army. He wrote Strike Swiftly in 2004, which was the history of the Australian commandos. Peter left the Navy as a captain in 2012. His lifelong interest in the ADF included his time as a television journalist at ABC TV, where he was the first journalist to fly in the F-111 in Australia, also flying in the Navy's A-4 Skyhawk and S-2 Tracker, several types of naval helicopter. He's been on board over 250 warships, Australian and foreign. This includes four carrier landings and catapult launches on US carriers. He witnessed the last broadside fired from a battleship off the Australian coast, and that was the USS New Jersey. That was back in 1988. He went to sea on the two most recent classes of Australian submarine and also to sea on 33 other surface warships. Now, the services definitely run in the Collins family. His grandfather, Charles Collins, served in battleships from 1904 to 1908. His uncle, Keith, served in HMAS Anzac off Korea. Cousin Gordon survived HMAS Voyager sinking off Jervis Bay in 1964. And Peter's father, Ron Collins, served with 22 Squadron, Richmond, New South Wales, as a navigator in bow fighters from 1944 to 1946, operating from Maratai through to the occupation of Japan. Ron was demobilised as a flying officer in 1946 after returning from Japan. We're really enjoying our time at the Anzac War Memorial in Hyde Park. This is an unbelievable facility and we've had the great honour and privilege of talking to a number of very interesting people and today it is no different. Captain the Honourable Peter Collins is with me. Hey Peter. Gareth, how are you? Mate, look, I'm well. Uh, 
When you were 17 years of age, you joined the Australian Army Reservists, but you only joined them because you couldn't get into Duntroon for a silly reason. What I, happened? I had, I had applied to go to the Royal Military College um, in the same year as my classmate, um, Peter Cosgrove, who did quite well after he went to Duntroon. Uh, <laughs> yeah, just a bit. Um, and... Um, and in the first year, I was—I uh, I already had a scholarship. Uh, I think it was a state government bursary. So they said, "Oh, you don't need the Duntroon scholarship, but it's looking good for you. Come back next year." I came back next year, and when I did, I'd had some allergic reaction. I think it was to calamine lotion or something like that, and I had what what appeared to be, you know, a, a mild case of leprosy or whatever on my forearms. And they said, "You're medically unfit. You can't join the regular army." Now. Uh, this was a bit of a life-changing experience because I um, had uh, determined I would go to Duntroon, graduate uh, as an officer and uh, join the then uh, embryonic special air service company as it then was yeah. uh, because I was always interested in special forces. So none of that was to be and um, I didn't go to Duntroon and I didn't join the regular army. So... You thought, all right, I still want to get in, so I'll go and join what was called the CMF or the Army, the Australian Army Reservists. Mm, yeah, it was the, the CMF in those days. So I, I finished my leaving certificate, as it then was the precursor to the higher school certificate. And uh, a week after that, I enlisted in the University of New South Wales Regiment. Um, I think two weeks after that, I was in my basic training uh, camp at Walgrove in Western Sydney. Um, six weeks after that, my first promotions course, again, back at Walgrove in Western Sydney. So within two months, I was a Corporal Royal Australian Infantry, and six months after that, um, uh, promoted Sergeant. So uh, I was on, on my way in the, in the CMF, or as, as we now call it, the Australian Army Reserve. Okay. Uh, while you were in that early stage, you had your uh, CEO was a very famous person by the name of Harry Smith. What can you tell our friends who Harry Smith was? Well, when I, I ended up in commandos, so I had this uh, – I've always been interested in special forces. Yep. Uh, and, and I thought this is where the future lay. And proved to be correct in that because special forces these days for armies seem to do most of the heavy lifting rather than infantry. They seem to be the um, the forces of choice for government when it comes to the sort of actions that we've been involved in. Um, I was fortunate enough to serve under uh, Harry Smith, who was my CO in the 1st Battalion Royal New South Wales Regiment Brackets Commando in 1969. So um, I was commissioned in Sydney University Regiment, uh, was a platoon commander in um, a, a battalion-sized Army Reserve mm. unit in those days. We all took it pretty seriously and um, then went to commandos in 69 and served under Harry Smith, who that was three years after he had commanded Delta Company uh, 6RAR in the Battle of Long Tan in Vietnam. And um, it was an extraordinary time to be in commandos and to be around men like Harry Smith. I mean, Harry Smith was certainly the standout uh, and remains an iconic figure in Australian military yeah. history. But our second in command, Mike Wells, had served 
in a uh, US Special Forces uh, Mike unit in Vietnam at the same time as Harry Smith. We had warrant officer instructors who had rotated through um, Vietnam as um, training team members. Mm-hmm. And I remember, uh, I remember Ray Simpson at the unit, Ray Simpson VC, uh, had come back to see the old unit in the time I was in it. We had, it was an extraordinary unit. We actually had two members in commandos those days who were Iron Cross recipients in World War II. And that sounds pretty extraordinary. They couldn't wear them on their uniforms. Um, <laughs> yeah, I wonder why. <laughs> <laughs> but um, um, one was given the choice of uh, join a German anti-aircraft unit or um, or go to a concentration camp. So he chose the anti-aircraft unit. Yeah. Uh, that, uh, the other one was captured, I think it was twice by the Russians and had escaped, had escaped once. Uh, and he, um, they, they were both extraordinary. They too were extraordinary yeah, soldiers. I, I can imagine. And as a younger person, how you and your peers interested, were you interested in, in talking to people like Harry Smith and about his reminiscences of, of Vietnam, etc.? Well, well, very much so, although Harry was a, a godlike figure even then. I mean, he has, um, I think, probably been further enhanced in that in that position I remain in touch with him and when um, when the movie about Long Tan premiered on the Gold Coast uh, three years ago now um, I attended the premiere uh, uh, as a guest of Harry Smith um, I had assisted him in the making of the film he needed uh, armoured personnel carriers and there was some question about which model armoured personnel carriers and Harry got me involved in that anyway the film was made outstanding film and uh, that was the uh, the last time that we physically saw each other pre-COVID and I, I don't want to give away the venue or the or the location but you have a on your property you have some of those army personnel carriers yourself don't you you own them i've got a um i have two um i call my wife calls them garden gnomes they're armored fighting vehicles um both um circa 1951 british army design i have have a saracen armored personnel carrier (laughs) and a ferret scout car the sports car of the armored regiment (laughs) so the people who live in your neighborhood feel very safe it's a it's a (laughs) safe neighborhood okay what was your first parachute jump like in 1969 um, well, Harry, um, and going back to Harry Smith, for Harry, um, jumping from a plane was like going to the office. For me, every time I jumped, I was convinced I would become the first uh, military fatality in parachuting. And um, I was quite fatalistic about it. So um, the last was as bad as the first because I thought each time this is it. And uh, so jumping for me um, was uh, was not easy. And I remember Harry Smith looking a- across um, a-, a very noisy caribou as we headed for the drop zone um, out of Williamtown. And Harry said, Mr. Collins, over the, the roar of the engines, Mr. Collins, don't you normally wear glasses? And, yes, sir. Can you see where you're going? No, sir. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, he he cracked up. He thought that was that was hilarious, and so Harry Harry jumped out. Harry was the drifter that day, just to make sure that um, the winds weren't too strong for yeah. we first timers to jump. And uh, that was the sort of character that he was. And um, I mean, there is an image of Harry Smith that I can never forget. We'd done a task force exercise in the Colo Putty area um, uh, in between Singleton and Currajong, and. Uh, 
it was uh, it was a big exercise. I mean, people forget that in those days with national service, you you actually had I think it was something like um, uh, fifty eight. 60,000 in, in the Army and Army Reserve combined. Yeah. So the task force was three infantry battalions and an armoured regiment and an artillery regiment and a commando company acting as enemy. So we were the enemy. And we, we did a pretty good job as enemy. And so much so that the regular Army instructors said, and, and they were ex-Vietnam, said, look, that was pretty good. That was um, uh, regular Army standard. Uh, well done. Didn't expect that. And uh, anyway, Harry Smith uh, arrived in this briefing, which was a, this debrief, which was occurring in a, in a clearing. Harry arrived in a, um, a Sioux helicopter, think the MASH helicopter. So it, it just comes out of nowhere, settles down. Uh, we wait for the, the noise to stop. Harry walks over in a flying suit, green beret, Ray-Bans. <laughs> and, Sounds like a and film. Says, and says, look... Um, you might think you've done well today, but unfortunately a number of you would have gone home in body bags and that's not what I want from my unit. I expect a higher standard. So, you know, the air was let out of, out of our tyres somewhat. Harry then turned around, walked, you know, took a few paces back, got in the helicopter, earphones over the beret and ascended into the heavens. So that was, that was that's Harry a great Smith. Image. Um, he was and is a legend. Yeah, that sounds like a scene out of Apocalypse Now, the, the film. Pretty much so, yeah. Uh, what confuses me, you've had this wonderful experience at the age of 17 and into parachute wings in 69, etc. But then you joined the Naval Reserve in 1975. I can't get my head around of what happened between being in the Army and then getting into the Navy. Explain. Um, in uh, After I'd left the commandos to finish my law degree and it was it was a tough choice I was repeating I was you and I go back to university together and I was repeating law I was involved in everything except study at university and so I was repeating law too and if I'd failed law too a second time I'd have been out of university and I had to make the tough choice that I think a lot of people have to make in life which one are you going to do so my career was going was not going to be then um, in the army sure in the army sure. reserve um, the army was full anyway I mean it was um, it was the biggest post-war Australian army that we've seen and so um, I, um, I, I'd gone on the reserve of officers in order to get through law to the second time which I did uh, and I, I missed it I mean I missed the ADF I mean I, I, I think very much in in ADF terms rather than individual service terms. I think sure. that we're um, a small force and we need to work in an integrated way. We all need to work together. And that's really been the Australian experience and, and needs to be for the future. I missed it. And uh, the, the army was full. Um, the army didn't need people back. Um, and they didn't even need me when I volunteered to go to Vietnam to go back to commandos and go to Vietnam. I've actually got a letter um, which Rejecting you. Saying, yeah, thanks very much for offering to serve in Vietnam. Kind of, we don't need you. <laughs> and so most people didn't want to serve in Vietnam. Um, and um, I wanted to see what was going on. And so uh, I, I did that as a student. I went as a civilian, but with the assistance of the then Defence Minister, Malcolm Fraser. So I got to the Australian Task Force base and spent a couple of days there um, uh, and, you know, heard the guns firing at night um, 
and yep. it was still it was, was still on. So um, I decided um, that I would join the Navy uh, about five years after I left the Army, uh, and there was a specific reason. So Army didn't particularly need people back. There were too many soldiers, too many reservists, too many ex-regular. And I did, I was by then working as an ABC television journalist and I did a lot of defence stories, probably about a third of the work that I did was defence related. And um, one of the stories was on a Qantas pilot who was also a patrol boat skipper. And uh, so I did both sides, uh, him flying a 707, uh, him commanding a patrol, Navy patrol boat. And out of that came an application for me to join the Naval Reserve, and I thought there'd be a role for me, probably in naval intelligence rather than seagoing, mm -hmm. because I was interested in the the policy side sure. of it. And uh, and that's where I ended up. So 1975, I was commissioned in the Navy. Yeah, and just, uh, just for our friend who's listening to what you're saying now, uh, let me uh, underpin the fact that, yes, when you went to university, you did succeed in law because you ended up, as I said in the introduction, a Queen's Councillor. And if you hadn't failed, you wouldn't, you wouldn't have been a QC. So that that's just want to make that very clear. And yes... Bonafides, I've got to declare also, Peter and I both went to the University of Sydney together, but he ended up far more successful than I ever did. Anyway, you've joined the Naval Reserve in 1975. Uh, in in actually getting in, what were, that, were then your given tasks? What did you have to do? So it was quite interesting. I, um, Being an ex-television journalist, the first thing they asked me to do was to remake the Naval Reserve recruiting film. So I uh, wrote, produced and directed the Naval Reserve recruiting film, um, which uh, about a 15 minute documentary. Uh, and they thought they would use me for various public relations exercises. And I mean, look, as a startup, that was probably a logical, logical place. Um, and so I, um, one specific event I was asked to cover was the arrival of the, uh, the first arrival of the majestic liner, the Queen Elizabeth II in Sydney Harbour. And I thought, this is great, you know, this is terrific. Um, the, um, anyway, the CEO of uh, the base said, look, uh, you, you know, you get down here. And, um, and, uh, and I, the same day we had half a dozen naval reserve ships coming back into Sydney Harbour and I said to the CEO look they're not going to cover the naval reserve we've got this amazing ocean liner best ocean liner in the world at the time um, coming into Sydney why don't we form a guard of honour around the, the QE2 as it comes up the harbour anyway he said yeah, great idea great idea and I said so if we put it in put our ships small ships tiny ships in a V formation around the QE2 he said look um, I'm, I'm the boss here. I'll worry about where ours go. So um, he said, they will be in line astern and they've got to come in way ahead of the QE too. And I said, but the way pictures are taken, sir, with great respect, is um, you need to have, if we don't have our little ships near the QE too, they won't, won't be in the picture. No, no. Anyway, any, anyway, it was, listen, Lieutenant, uh, this is the way it's going to work and you just be down at the work, work boat at 0600. So I'm down at the workboat at 0600, which is a, which I've got to say was the worst workboat the Navy had um, circa 1976, and out we went in, into the, uh, the main harbour channel. The sun was rising. The small uh, naval reserve ships came up the harbour 
as the CO had indicated, um, you know, miles ahead for safety reasons, he said, miles ahead of the QE2. They disappeared. No one even noticed them, right? So no pictures were taken of, of the Navy whatsoever. QE2 came roaring down the harbour, and I'm on a workboat, chock-a-block full of TV crews, radio commentators, you know, the odd still photographer, <laughs> and the boat broke down. And, uh, and they're saying, uh, excuse me, look, can we get over the other side? We're shooting into the sun here. We, you know, we, we can't really do this. And I said, we're trying to get the engine going again here. <laughs> um, that boat remained stranded, bobbing up and down in the main shipping channel as the QE2 went roaring down the harbour, you know, accompanied by the appropriate flotilla of small craft. And we had to put out a distress call on a Sydney radio station to get rescued. So that wasn't, I thought, no, Navy PR is probably not the place for me. So I then went to Naval Control of Shipping, which is convoy work, did that for about a year, yeah. and then uh, then Naval Intelligence, which is where I was for about 13 years, and thoroughly enjoyed that. Okay. It was fabulous. <clears throat> I know that one of the things you're very keen to talk to, and me as well, and that, of course, is your, your family background as far as the Defence Force is concerned, but I, I still want to st stick with you, if that's all right. In 2007, you saw duty, active service duty in Iraq. Um, yes. What was your role there? How did you get posted there in the Navy? And what did you do? So so this is fast forwarding to 2007. By then I'd, I'd done 13 years intelligence about the same time in legal. So when I became a state, state attorney general for New South Wales, I switched to the legal panel of um, the Naval Reserve and, um, and had then became the first reservist to be the acting fleet legal officer of the Navy 2003 and four uh, to fill in while the fleet legal officers uh, had other duties. Um, and um, anyway, in 2007, uh, it was determined that we, as part of the surge in Iraq, that is when General David Petraeus took over the American operation to try to uh, get it back on track, uh, Iraq was going, you know, badly in the wrong direction. Petraeus was put in command. Um, General Petraeus with Prime Minister John Howard, uh, one of the things they agreed to do was to, uh, Petraeus said he would establish a rule of law task force to operate in, uh, in Baghdad to try to get the legal and judicial systems working again in Iraq. In mm. other words, since the war, uh, they basically collapsed and legal, legal processes the courts, etc., were not functioning in Iraq. So I was appointed to lead a tri-service legal team in Baghdad, ADF legal team in Baghdad uh, in 2007. And we deployed, uh, we, were, we were given about uh, three or four weeks notice to deploy. And uh, we were on the ground within four weeks of uh, being given the order. And the legal brief that you were given for the Iraqis that was taken up by Petraeus and the Americans? It was quite, yeah, it was quite extraordinary. I mean, look, this was um, serious post-war reconstruction. Petraeus, uh, for whom I have enormous and enduring respect, 
and and I've been fortunate in meeting him and having a couple of discussions with him. Um, Petraeus realised that it's not wasn't just about winning the war; it was about um, trying to stabilise the country and uh, and getting it to resume services, resume the normal functioning uh, of a country post-war. So, in it's in his own way, Petraeus was responsible during the surge for what um, uh, General Marshall was in Europe post-World post War, War II. Two, yeah. And uh, and he went about it in a very uh, methodical uh, uh, and analytical way, uh, as you'd expect from the, the PhD, which he was. And, um, and so part of that was the resumption of legal services. And we were... We were put into um, a, a task force which was predominantly American, as you'd expect, mm. but it was multinational. So you had um, all sorts of elements in this. You had, um, you had, I think it was nine courts. You had, uh, it was close to Rasafa Prison, which I think is the oldest prison in Baghdad. Mm. Um, you had the Baghdad Police College, which was, um, they had trainers seconded from Scotland Yard and the FBI. Mm. You had essentially 90 reserve lawyers flown in from uh, the US reserves and, uh, and the JAG Corps in the United States. And, um, and we were part of all of that. And it was an extraordinary thing to be part of. And, I, and we have the distinction, we three, Army, Navy and Air Force, have the distinction of being the only Australians deployed to the Middle East unarmed during the Middle East conflict. Wow. Wow. Just let me go back to your ter term as a, as a journalist with ABC. It was This Day Tonight, the program? This Day Tonight, and, um, and I was a researcher for Four Corners. Four Corners, well. okay. During that time as a journalist, uh, I believe you flew in the F-111? I did. I was the first journalist in Australia to be allowed to fly in the F-111. And um, it was a bit of a test case for the Air Force because... All the publicity about the F-111 uh, until then had been negative. It was the F-111's a disaster, we should never have bought it, the wings fall off, it's a white elephant. Uh, everyone said the F-111 was the biggest waste of money we'd ever committed ourselves to. I did a story on the F-111 and flew in the F-111 uh, uh, um, and that was an extraordinary experience and I, I presented the facts that the... Um, the uh, the rate, lo the accident loss rate for the um, F-111 was very, very demonstrably less than the Century Series fighters of the United States Air Force, the F-100, 102, mm. et cetera, the Starfighter. Uh, and so the F-111, um, when you actually looked at the stats, was performing well even then. The F-111 went on to become... Uh, a, a brilliant aircraft for Australia. It gave us an unprecedented uh, strike capability to be blunt to call a spade a spade. Um, it was a magnificent aircraft and I was there to see the aircraft that I flew in, A8125, be the last F-111 to land in Australia. That aircraft is now in the RAF Museum at Point Cook and uh, it it was a magnificent aircraft, and I think any anyone in the Air Force who's ever had anything to do with the F F-111 misses it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, then still part of ABC TV, a Navy A-4 Skyhawk? I did. Uh, I flew in the, the Navy Skyhawk, so we still had an aircraft carrier, Melbourne, and it was... Um, 
flying uh, a squadron of uh, A4 Skyhawk fighter bombers. So like the F-111 designated a fighter bomber, but about one third the size and weight. Uh, very, very competent little aircraft which had served uh, amazingly well in Vietnam in particular. Um, so I flew with, uh, with 805 Squadron, the Navy's fighter squadron, in uh, the back seat of their trainer aircraft. Mm. They had two Skyhawk trainers. Uh, it had always been my wish to be a naval aviator, but um, glasses, glasses at age 13 put an end to that, or being really a military aviator at that stage for, of flying anything. Yeah. Um, but I got to fly in all four types of aircraft flown off the aircraft carrier Melbourne. So the Skyhawk, the Tracker, the Sea King and the Wessex helicopters. I, I flew in all of them. So fixed wing or helicopter? Which would you prefer if you'd been able to get into oh, the Air fixed, Force? Fixed wing, fixed wing. Um, I mean, look, helicopter flying is interesting in that it's, um, to me, it's it's kind of a reversion to... Uh, almost World War One, World War Two era flying. You get the elements. You can you can put you put the canopy back, and you can feel the wind, and you can. Yeah. I remember. Okay. I never. You know. Um, but but the it was quite interesting to contrast the F one eleven with the um, A four Skyhawk, and I flew in them within about six months of each other, uh, and the F one eleven was like being in a Ferrari. And the A4 was like being on a trail bike. Okay, interesting <laughs> analogies. Um, I, I am going to get to the family, trust me, but I, I don't know how any one person could have done this. You tell me that you've been on 250 different warships. <laughs> You're not that old. How can you have been on 250 <laughs> different warships? As, um, okay, my first warship, my father... Uh, took me on when I was age seven, HMS Australia, the heavy cruiser, yep. which was, um, which had been the flagship and served for I think it was 28 years or so in the Australian Navy. Uh, and uh, my uncle at the time was on HMS Anzac, served in the Korean War. My cousin served on um, Queenborough Vendetta and Voyager, and took me to sea on a family day. In, um, in about 1961. Okay, that's five warships. That's five. I'm, I uh, got into my blood, so every time a warship came into Sydney, I wanted to go and see it. And oh, that, okay. that was my hobby on weekends. I mean, other, other kids dutifully played cricket or, you know, um, or football, and I'd be down there inspecting uh, HMS whatever or USS okay. something or other. I'll share briefly... My, one of my experiences, because I know it allies with one of your experiences, but yours came in 1988. Mine came a few years before that. When we had a, a, a celebration for the Royal Australian Navy and the USS Missouri came to Sydney, this was in the 80s, 85 or 3 or thereabouts. 86. 86, okay. Um, a friend of mine, well, I worked at a radio station, and a guy in the newsroom was in the Navy, and he part-time was a newsreader. And he said... Would you like to come and have a look at the Missouri with me? To which I said, absolutely. So he took me up in the US in the helicopter. We flew down to Wollongong and or Kai, uh, yeah, Wollongong, and off the coast of Australia was the USS Missouri. And they were going to give a demonstration of a broadside. So the ship turned on its side. I'm in the helicopter watching this, and all of the guns fired out to sea a broadside. Now I'm in the helicopter. The sound of the rotary, 
cans on my ears and the sound was deafening. And I have a photo, which I'll show you later, of that broadside, which I took. It was the most amazing experience. Now, you can match it and probably better it because you saw the last broadside of the New Jersey. Tell me about that. So... I was on the deck of the New Jersey. Oh, well, you better you outdo me. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, they were sister ships, and um, and both had. Uh, I mean, they were very competitive, New Jersey and Missouri. So you did, you did Missouri, but you saw from a helicopter. You saw the one of the last broadsides fired by a battleship. Yep. I saw the last broadside fired off an, off the Australian coast on the New Jersey two years after you saw the Missouri from your helicopter. Um, and uh, standing on the deck uh, of the New Jersey off the New South Wales coast, uh, it's the only way I can describe it is like being involved in an explosion. Uh, it was it was it it kind of deconstructed every molecule in your body. You you felt. I mean, you smelt, felt, it pulsated right through your entire body. The ship moves, a 60,000 tonne ship moved, uh, I think it's um, a metre or two metres in the water <laughs> sideways. Yes. And the size of the shells fired, and you've got um, three turrets each with three guns. So nine 16-inch guns firing the equivalent each, the equivalent of the weight of a Volkswagen. Uh, at one time, which which hit um, which hit the surface about uh, what is it about 30 kilometres away, um, it is a, a, it was like it was Jurassic Park, you know. It was yeah. like yeah, I, it, it's gone now. Uh, it hasn't gone from my memory. Let me no, assure you. Never, no, never. No, <laughs> you can't forget it. It was, but it was extraordinary. Uh, and you know, it, you at your altitude, sitting there in a helicopter, uh, felt and saw everything. Oh. Okay, enough comparisons of broadsides. Grandfather Charles served on battleships between 1904 and 1908. Uncle Keith was on HMS Anzac off Korea. Cousin Gordon was on the Voyager. And Father Ron was in 22 Squadron and Bowfighters. Now, that's an illustrious family of military people. Everybody... Everybody did their bit. I mean, there are no Victoria Crosses there. There are no um, decorations for bravery. But everybody uh, was keen to uh, to serve this country, and it was quite interesting. My father and I've got I brought along his um, his correspondence today. He had to uh, force his way into World War Two. He wanted to be a pilot. He wanted to be aircrew, and um, he was working in a protected industry and they wouldn't let him leave his protected what industry. What was the industry? Well, the industry. It, it was a, a pretty modest job. It was just making bed frames for army beds, you know, those metal frame yes. folding beds with a, a kind of a wire base yes. and folding legs. There was a factory producing those at Waverley in Sydney. Please Henry share the letter. Henry Clark and Sons and... Uh, he was told he couldn't join the Air Force because he worked in a protected industry. And um, thank you very much for your interest in serving in World War II, but you'd get back there and make more beds. He persisted, and it actually took him. He had to go to his local federal member who had to seek a dispensation from the Minister for Labor and National Service for him to leave 
um, the bed factory to join the Air Force and uh, go, go and put his life on the line. And I have that correspondence. So it actually took him about about 18 months to get permission to leave the bed factory to join the Air Force. So what year did the 18 months begin and when did it end? Was it pre-1940 or was yeah, it... Yeah, he, um, he, um, his first application to join the Air Force was in 1941. Uh, and then it was, well, look, they said not only can't you leave your, your job... But if you do leave your job, and he, he'd resigned, he resigned from the job thinking, well, if I resign, then I can join the Air Force. They, they threatened him that um, if he didn't, uh, you, couldn't, you couldn't just leave a job in a vital industry then. Uh, and he ran the risk of action being taken against him. Uh, and possible imprisonment. Leaving, yeah, 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 for um, wanting to join the Air Force. So eventually, in 1943... He, after the intervention of the local federal member and, uh, and the minister's consent, he was allowed to apply to join the Air Force and off he went at the end of 1943. Okay. Uh, why was it the Air Force? Did, did you ever discuss that? Yes, I did. And um, he... Um, okay, my, my father's family came from um, uh, Bentley, which is between Casino and Lismore. Right. And... Uh, my father's best friend was a, a guy called Edward James Holmes, Teddy, Teddy Holmes. And Bentley's a bit of a one-horse town. There's a community hall there. It's actually been the subject of a big environmental case in the last few years, which has given it some fame. But um, as kids, they hung out together. They went to the local school. They were both PMG telegram delivery boys together. Um, they were both sort of athletic they both fantasised about joining the Air Force and Teddy Holmes and my father applied to join the Air Force. Okay, that makes sense. Teddy, uh, Teddy, Teddy joined. He went to Bomber Command in England. When Dad joined? When, when, Ron, Ron, when Ron joined. My, my uh, father took another two years to be allowed to join because he was working yeah, in this uh, vital uh, industry. Which you said. So when he does get in... What happens to him? Where does he go? Who does he fly with? So uh, he um, he went to um, did a course, a navigator's course at Mount Gambier in South Australia. Right. Qualified as a navigator and uh, then uh, and a wireless air gunner. So it was a dual qualification, and uh, that um, that made him suitable aircrew for um, three types of aircraft: the Mosquito the Bowfighter and the Vengeance Dive Bomber. Didn't like the idea of the Vengeance Dive Bomber because they just drop out of the sky and he had a thing about um, a bit of a vertigo thing. Right. Mosquito sounded pretty good, but anyway, he ended up in Bowfighters. And, I mean, that was a fabulous aircraft to serve in in World War II in the Pacific or anywhere. I mean, they were rugged, they were heavily, very heavily armed and they were fast and they could outrun virtually anything. So uh, he ended up in a fantastic aircraft. If you're going to pick an aircraft for the Pacific Theatre, that was one of the aircraft to pick because it was twin-engined. If one engine went, you had another one to get home on. It had, um, I think it had uh, four 20-millimetre um, uh, cannons and as many machine guns. It, could, uh, it was usually rocket-armed and, um, and it was a terrific attack aircraft. Okay. Australian-built. Um so, 
does he stay in Australia or does he, is he posted overseas? He was posted uh, overseas and he went to basically fairly quickly went to uh, Moritai. Moritai was um, directly south of the Philippines. So I think between um, um, part of the, uh, the, the Borneo group of islands yes. uh, and directly south of the Philippines. And it was uh, a major Australian, it was the major Australian airbase in that part of the world. And is that 22 Squadron? And that, well, it was, there was uh, 22 Squadron, 30 Squadron. So you had a, a bow fighter attack wing and you had um, a fighter wing there commanded by um, Group Captain Clive Caldwell, Killer Caldwell, yeah. um, operated, uh, I think he was commanding three squadrons of Spitfires out of Moritai. It was also used by the United States Army Air Force, as it then was, for, uh, for B-29s. So I've got photographs my father took and showed me of you know b-29s and it was a b-29 that ended world war ii by mm. dropping bombs on hiroshima and nagasaki yes so he operated alongside b-29s he operated alongside the the spitfires flown by Corwall squadrons out of moritai uh and uh and he was in uh, one of the i think two or three bowfighter squadrons that operated from moritai and it was a fabulous fabulous base i love the way you're talking about this as though it was yesterday i mean <laughs> you, did you have long conversations with your father many years after the war about this he um i was always interested and i tried to extract information i mean you hear so often that um that that generation didn't talk about the war very much mm. and i i I suppose I was a relentless questioner, and uh, and I was very interested in. He knew I was going to do something. I was going to mm. join join the air force or the or the army Whatever. or the navy or all of them, you know. But um, he um, he knew where I was headed, and um, so he told me a fair bit. He also had uh, had photographs. I mean, he, for example, he had photographs very poorly. Um, uh, produced photographs of Hiroshima, which had been done as souvenir photographs, presumably produced by uh, by a Japanese photographic mm. shop, whatever. I, I had those, and I remember saying, "So, what was it like?" And he had uh, he had gone to Hiroshima in the occupation forces at the end of World mm. War Two. So he served you see, after Moritai and and uh, about. 350 hours or so of um, um, operations out of Moritai, including Tarakan and Labuan. Um, he was in the massive air armada that became the occupation, of, the occupation of, Japan. of Japan. And he, I remember him describing to me this air arm armada after um, uh, victory was declared and the signing of the surrender in Tokyo Bay. And I think it was something like four squadrons of Mustangs with, um, with bow fighters in front as um, uh, navigational planes to, because they had a navigator like him in the back. And, uh, and down the back you had a um, couple of Catalina flying boats to um, rescue people who mm. went down. And behind them you had C-47 Dakotas. You had this massive air train went to Japan. And he um, described um, flying into Japan over the... Uh, over the Sea of Japan and seeing sunken wrecks of battleships and so mm. on still just sitting sitting there in, in the mist as they flew in. Unfortunately, he, I mean, he also told me that one whole flight of Mustangs, our Mustangs, um, because of poor visibility uh, and, and that shroud of mist over Japan, 
flew straight into a cliff uh, as they approached their base at Iwakuni. And uh, so anyway, he served in, um, he spent uh, time with the occupation forces in Japan. Mm. He brought back the photographs from Hiroshima. He went to Hiroshima, was on the ground. I remember him bringing back a a melted milk bottle, which somehow, um, I I don't know where that went, but the things you have as a kid, you lose them along the way, unfortunately. Mm. Um, But, I mean, all of that left a very deep impression on me. Peter, journalist, army reservist, Navy reservist, leader of a state political party, QC. What haven't you done? I'm being facetious. (laughs) There there are always things to do, and I think we run out of time. I'm very fortunate in the variety of things I've been able to do in my life, and I have always believed in sort of serial careers that you, you know, one... One chapter ends, Leads another, another one begins, yes, and yes. I, I think that this is the way people, particularly now, millennials now, I mean, listening to this, what piece of advice would I have for them? Um, don't put all your eggs in one basket. Don't think that, you know, if if I don't get into Duntroon and become a regular army officer, that's it, I'm a failure and there's no, there's nothing else for me. Find an alternative, find something like it. I mean, you know, the Air Force motto, uh, per ardua ad astra, you know, um, you have to aim for the stars. Uh, and if, if you aim for the stars, at least, you know, you get off the ground and you get in some sort of uh, trajectory. And, and that's really what you've got to do. And, uh, and you've, got to, you've got to get in the ballpark. See, the journalist comes out in you with the fact that you bring this back to what these interviews are all about is for the Royal Australian Air Force. Ten out of ten for that, Peter. That was very, very clever. Uh, and and I value your friendship. I mean, I've said already, but I'll make it a little bit clearer. Peter and I have been good friends for a long time because we were at university together, Sydney University. Um, we did get up to some interesting things, which we won't go into, but he is a remarkable person and as i said he has this unbelievable property with a museum and actual arms of of generations gone by i want to thank you for your contribution to the very rich fabric and tapestry of australia's history especially military history but more especially new south wales so peter it's been an honor catching up with you like this and thank you sir it has been an absolute pleasure and may we do it again sometime Globally, the RAAF has between 500 and 700 people on operations every day, contributing to coalition operations, peacekeeping and humanitarian and disaster relief. The RAAF takes pride in its service. It has a history of endeavour and sacrifice, which has won it a place in the hearts of all Australians and a position of respect among the armed services of all Australia's allies. The RAAF will never tarnish its record. It carries on in the proud tradition of Per Adua Ad Astra. This 
This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. Produced by Air Force Association New South Wales, which is a registered charity that focuses on the well-being of Air Force veterans and their families. If you would like to donate funds to help us with this important work, you can search Air Force Association New South Wales in Google and go to our website. Thank you.